Hello, church. If you'd open to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 1 through 17 for us. This is the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and incovetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have, been, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek. And Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do. In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so again, Father, we ask for Your help. Because Lord, if we are left with these commandments, it is very possible that we will not get up from here and do them. And so we pray that we could be doers of the Word especially in our marriages. Pray for husbands and wives, Lord, for all of us who are married to avail ourselves of the strength of your Holy Spirit to beautify and better our marriages so that you get more glory, so that our spouses are blessed, so that all the watching world, our families, our homes, the culture, the church, Lord, would be helped by us doing what you've called us to do. Lord, help us with these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We start today um, our part seven to this series on marriage. Uh, We've been studying passage after passage on marriage um, and uh, God's design on the differences of the, the gender roles in marriage and the distinct glories that are associated with those different roles. So that the glory of the husband is different than the glory of the wife. 
because the husband is to portray Christ and the wife the church. And if they swapped roles, they would diminish the glory uh, that they are to display in their differences. So we spent six weeks looking at the glory of the differences uh, in marriage roles. Now we take a turn here and we're going to begin to focus on the glory of the unity uh, the glory of the unity. And what I want to do today is I want to I begin to argue that husbands and wives must see each other in their marriage as ministers to each other first uh, before anyone else, before kids, before the local church, before the lost and unbelieving world. Uh, we are first and primarily ministers to one another. And this is not uh, difficult to argue because we've looked at a lot of passages so far. I'll just name the three big ones we've looked at. All of them say this. Uh, Genesis 2, the woman was made to help, it says, the man. But help what? Help minister to him and help him in his ministry. That's Genesis 2. The very design for manhood and womanhood in connection to marriage. Ephesians 5, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, could there be a greater ministry God has called us to, men? Has he called us to lay down our lives in that way for our children or for anyone else? In the exact same way, he says, this woman is you. To love your wife is to love yourself. That is a unique ministry as husbands regarding our love for our wives that really doesn't it isn't like that with anyone else. First uh, Peter 3, we saw last week, the wife is to have a particular way she relates to her husband that isn't like how she relates to any other man. It's, it's unique. It's utterly unique in the way that she is to minister to him more so in many ways, in, 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 at least in different ways, than, than her children. Uh, certainly others in the church, other friends, her parents, uh, it is a unique ministry. Now, here's another way we could argue this about the priority of ministry to each other in marriage. We could talk about something that I often call moral proximity. Uh, moral proximity. That we have a greater responsibility to minister to someone in closer proximity to us than those further away. So, for example, uh, those who just stood here before the church and said, we commit to this body have an actual obligation to care for the people in this church more than church three miles down the road. There's a moral obligation uh, regarding their ministry to this church. James 2.2 is an example of this. It says, if, if a rich man and poor man come into your assembly, and it talks about if you treat one better than the other, you're wrong. But why are they even in that position to have to think about how to treat a rich or a poor man whether they're going to show favoritism to one or the other. The only reason they even have that predicament is because the person came into their assembly. If the person would have stayed out and they never met them, they wouldn't have the same moral obligation than if that person came in among them. Uh, in the home, for example, 1 Timothy 5.8, if a man doesn't provide for the members of his own household, wife and kids especially, he is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. I'm not called to provide and put food on the table for my, uh, my neighbor's wife and kids, 
But if I don't do that for mine, I'm, I can't even call myself a Christian. The, you see the moral proximity. There, there really is a sense in which we bear greater responsibility to minister to those closest to us. And if our wife is called us, she is me in a profound covenantal sense, how much greater moral responsibility do I have to minister to her? A, a great, great responsibility. Um, I, I really believe that husbands will stand before the Lord one day and God will say to us, how did you love this woman that I gave you? And God will say to the wives, how did you honor this man that I gave you to honor? He will hold us accountable for how we minister to our spouses. And that doesn't downplay our ministry to all the other people we minister to. It just, I'm, I'm just simply highlighting, if you want to know where your greatest ministry focus should be, it is your spouse. It's your spouse. And so here's, here's how I want to, to look at this ministry of marriage. I want to give a fourfold argument from Colossians 3. Uh, I'll lay out the argument, and then I'm going to give four words associated with it so that we can remember this. Uh, and then we'll look at each individually. So here's the argument from Colossians 3. Premise 1. Your life is about God, not you. Therefore, marriage as part of life is about God, not you. Premise two, if your life and marriage are about God and not you, then God has authority to instruct you in certain behaviors and habits that you're to habitually do in your life and marriage. Premise three, if God instructs certain habits and behaviors, it's because they are uniquely designed to transform us and our marriage. And then if those three premises above are true, then we should trust God's design for the ministry of marriage that it won't just make for happy, temporary marriages, but eternally, an eternally joyful inheritance and glory. And so this is the, the argument in, in four words. A vision leads to habits, which leads to transformation, which leads to an inheritance. I want to walk through those four things, starting with vision. So every marriage has a vision. It's a good one or it's a bad one. It's one that's clear or it's one that is constantly changing. But we all have a vision for our marriage. Um, here's the vision I'm proposing that we all have. Your marriage isn't about you. It's about God. Because your life isn't about you. Your life is about God, and marriage is a part of life. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life? appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's the vision. That's the vision. Marriage isn't about you. It's about Christ in God, his glory being shown through your marriage. And you go, well, that sounds very basic. 
It's about God. How, how basic? I mean, can we, uh, and I'm not asking if we know this. I think I would hope we would all give this answer that our marriages are ultimately about God. But I'm not asking if we know this. I'm asking, are you embodying this? There's a great difference between understanding a simple theological truth and actually embodying and letting that truth transform our lives. It's actually, this is actually a very profound truth because we're not born believing it or doing it. Uh, it's like my, my sons the other day when we, they were both sick on a Sunday morning and so we left them at the house and I told them, I want you to watch a sermon. And uh, later that day when I got back, I said, what, what did you learn from the sermon? And they said that our life is not about ourselves, it's about God. And I, I didn't go that's all you learned? That's so basic. That's so simple. I didn't say that because it's not basic and it's not simple. And God willing, they will spend their lives trying to grasp how profound that actually is. And so I, I then asked them, how many people, guys, do you think actually live like there's a God who their life is about? And even, and, and they know, very few. But look, this is the reality. We are born into a world and we eventually begin to realize people don't actually live like there's a God. I mean, they do. They act like there's, they are the God. They make the rules. But they don't live like there's a creator God who creates the world and everything in it and gives rules and laws to govern all things. We like to be like Adam and Eve and make our own rules and be our own gods and the role of a parent is to come in and create a biblical worldview where life only makes sense with God as creator. And nothing else even makes sense apart from the existence of God. That all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory. That should orient everything in our lives around that central truth. And so what children need to see in a marriage is not mom and dad going on regular date nights and communicating in healthy ways, although that could be helpful. What they need to see is two people who life doesn't make sense for them apart from God and the centrality of God. And, and look, when, when, you're, when you're trying to find a spouse, any of you who are single and you want to get married, don't just look for someone who has their theological categories in place. Look for someone who verse 1 and 2 is a reality in their life. That they are seeking the things of heaven and not just the things of earth. That they actually realize I'm dead to my dreams and to my future and to my earthly ambitions. Christ is my life. That will make a good spouse. That will make a good marriage. Now, I want to pause here because... Anybody, uh, maybe there's somebody thinking this. This is the type of questions I like to raise that many people aren't even thinking about. Um, but Colossians 3 says, seek the things above in heaven, not the things on the earth. Well, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that says, when you're married, and Paul even makes an argument that you might not need to get married, because when you get married, you seek the things of earth. And so how do those two passages, do they contradict each other? It seems so, but let me read this passage in 1 Corinthians seven twenty six. It says this, 
For it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife, meaning married or engaged? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed or an engaged woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. Listen, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they had none. And let those who mourn as if they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And I want you to be free from anxieties. To the unmarried man, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about, listen, worldly things. How to please his wife. And so his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. Do you hear how those two passages seem to contradict each other? I don't think they do. Let me me try to illustrate this in my own life. Uh, Before marriage... I was a bit of a wild man. <laughs> um, I, uh, I would go on, you know, all summer, four-month mission trips to dangerous places. Um, I would sleep out in the woods for a week with no tent by myself. Um, I was out on the streets ministering to the homeless all of the time, bringing them in to live with me. Uh, I had roommates. We would stay up all night doing ministry and, and doing things that most people would look at as odd. Uh, for the for the sake of Christ, um, I didn't ask anybody's permission. I didn't have to call and say, "Can I do this?" I just did. I had a Paul-like single man freedom to minister however I wanted, whenever I wanted, to whomever I wanted, however long I wanted. The moment I got married, all that changed, and it doesn't. And it didn't mean all my zeal had to go away. And it didn't mean I couldn't serve the Lord anymore. It means I need to consider my wife now. Live with her in an understanding way. She is a central priority, not just ministering to her, but with her. It actually began to open up new ways to minister that I couldn't minister as a single man. I had to think about things, though, at another level, uh, I got to support two people, not just one. I got to think about a a type of job in which I could do that. I don't know if my wife would want to eat tuna and eggs and oatmeal every day. I mean, maybe she might want other types of diversity of food. You know, I'm having to think about stuff that I wasn't thinking about as a single man. Um, Probably shouldn't let the homeless guy that I'm ministering to sleep on the couch every night. She might not appreciate that, right? Just things change. I'm thinking about my wife, what would bless her. How could she be fruitful? How do I protect and provide for her? I'm thinking, who can we serve together? What does this look like for us to minister together? And not just two separate individuals, but as one family unit. See how the the mindset shifts. I'm no longer John the Baptist living in the wilderness eating bugs. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm not traveling missionary Paul, uh, who's in prison all the time, shipwrecked, getting beat up, doing all kinds of things. I would argue that Paul was able to do that because he was single. And if Paul had been married with kids at the house, he should have changed some of his missionary practices. But he was single. So he didn't have to. And that's his whole argument. That's the whole argument. Let me, let me ask a question. Um, the, regarding the first marriage problem in the Bible with Adam and Eve, whose fault was it? Because Eve said it was the serpent's fault. And then Adam pointed at Eve and said, it's the wife you gave me. And he basically blamed not only his wife, but God for giving him a wife that would sin in this way. What, what was the real problem, though, for both of them? The, the real problem for both of them was their own rebellion against God. That they both came out from under the authority of God in their lives and marriages. When, when a counselor sits down with a couple and says, what can I help you with? And the couple begins to list off, well, he's too fixated on work and she's too fixated on the kids and you know we can't communicate and we're blah, blah, blah. And they just begin to lay out all these things. You know what uh, a marriage counselor almost never hears but probably should hear? We've messed up our marriage because we've made it about us. And we've made it about our kids. And God has been removed from the picture. That's the fundamental problem underneath all the other problems. It was Adam and Eve's problem. It's the problem in every other marriage. The dethroning of God and the enthroning of ourselves in His place. That's the fundamental problem in every marriage. The greatest, which means the greatest need in every marriage is to, is to decenter ourselves and to recenter God. And let me let me be let me be clear about this. The greatest problem in your marriage is not your spouse's sin. It is yours. And that's the case with me as well. I, I, I've shared this before. I'll, I'll continue to share this because this is, this is just my story and how the grace of God met us in our marriage. Eight years into marriage, we ran into marriage problems because I came under the deception that my wife was the problem. And once she gets fixed, our marriage will be fixed. I was foolish and deceived. Now, the Holy Spirit might have needed to deal with her on things. But I needed to get my stuff in order. And as soon as I began to have that mindset, things began to change. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all of us need this one moment in our life where we, where we just finally surrender to God and put Him as first in our marriage. What I'm saying is, there's a rebellious streak in you, brother. There's a rebellious streak in you, sister. That if you do not daily... Bow yourself before the Lord and remember who is actually Lord of your life. You will seek to be your own Lord of your life. You will seek to do marriage your own way. And you will see the consequences of that. It is not good fruit that comes from that. We, we are daily in need of remembering what this passage says. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God in Christ who is my life. When that reality begins to shape us, we're in a pretty good place to begin to love a spouse. 
But that's what has to shape us. And it's very basic. But it's, it's central to everything. Now, out of that, we could say practically, how does that look on, on the ground? Well, that leads to the second point, what we'll call habits. Things we habitually do to live out this ultimate reality. And I'm not just coming up with the word habits. I see it in verse 9 here. It says, you have put off the old self with its practices. You could translate that habits. You've put off the old self with its practices. So what are these habits or practices the husband and wife must continue to put off? Well, there's put off ones and put on ones, actually, as we read on. There's things we must put off related to the old self, as verse 9 says. But verse 12 says there are things we need to put on related to the new self. Habits and behaviors that we need to continually put on. So here's what this tells us about marriage. That marriage isn't mainly about really big moments. Marriage is actually really about little mundane small moments. I am convinced it is not the big moments, the big vacations, the very expensive gifts. It's not, that's not what makes a marriage. Marriages go bad not because of big moments. Marriages go bad because of lots of little mundane small moments that aren't taken seriously. And marriages begin to be redeemed and restored and beautified again when we take little moments seriously. And recognize the power of them. If you don't care about the little moments of your marriage, you don't care about your marriage. Look at these two categories. I'm going to call these the first set mortifying habits. Things that we must kill and put to death in our marriages. It says, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. So habits uh, that, are, that are sexual in nature. Not just the physical acts, but the heart desires. It says impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Those things must die in a marriage before they kill the marriage. Then he gives another category. Habits related to anger. Verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Now, I'm going to just stop there on those two categories because we're going to come back the next few weeks and deal with anger and sexual sin in particular. But here's, here's really what he's saying. In the same way someone who is a glutton shouldn't indulge all of their bodily impulses at a buffet lest they want their health to suffer for it. A married couple shouldn't indulge all of their bodily impulses in their marriage unless they want their marriage to suffer for it. You can't just give yourself over to all of these things. This, uh, Priscilla was talking to uh, someone recently about this. It was a really profound thing she said. She said, one of the greatest blessings in marriage is also one of the greatest difficulties of marriage. It's kind of the worst and the best thing about marriage in some ways. And what she was talking about, the, the thing that's both a blessing and could be a curse, is the fact that in marriage you get to be who you truly are. You get to be yourself, right, in a way that you can't in other settings. You just really get to be yourself. It's one of the blessings of marriage. And that's a great thing. And that can be a terrible thing. 
And so what Priscilla was warning uh, this person about is that if we're not careful, because we are just ourself and we let down our guard and we're just ourself around our spouse, what we can begin to do is get careless with how we speak, careless with how we act, because things become so regular and common. And couples can get careless with their interactions and give in to impulses that can be very destructive. And we don't even see this. This is why I have to highlight this is because it's like when you're driving the same road to work every day and then one day you get to work and you're like, did I drive here? I don't remember even driving here. Everything was on autopilot, right? We can habituate ourselves and, and make things so regular we don't even realize we're doing them. That happens in marriage with how we speak to our spouse, with how we treat our spouses. We don't even realize we're being disrespectful. We don't even realize we're being unloving. Because we've done it so many times. It's become so regular. And good, healthy marriages are good and healthy because the couple is able to recognize, no, I'm not going to give in to this impulse to speak right now. I'm not going to neglect this or this because it's destructive to the marriage. I'm going to share the lowest point in our marriage because I think it applies here. I think the lowest point in the Oleski marriage was we were on a date, um, and I got so mad at Priscilla that I just walked off. I just started walking. No plan. I didn't know where I was going. (laughs) Just, Just walking off. I finally realized, I don't know where I'm going. I need to turn around. It was, it was so utterly irrational. <laughs> there are so many things like that in our marriages that are utterly irrational when you step back and you think about it. And healthy marriages are able to stop and go, I'm not doing that anymore. That's destructive. That's unhelpful. That produces nothing Good. That's what Paul's talking about. Put off certain old self practices, things related to your former self, bad habits that will put your marriage to death. Put those things to death before they destroy your marriage. It's 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 a a step up from what we talked about in the Song of Solomon one when it says catch the little foxes that can destroy the vineyard. How you need to catch certain things and control them in your marriages and lock them up. And this is a different ratcheted up process. You kill certain things. Certain things just need to die. Certain ways of relating to your spouse can't continue to live. Verse 12 says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must must forgive. And again, we're going to talk about conflict resolution next week. It is an absolute must in a marriage. There are what we could call as well vivifying habits or or things that by the Spirit we put on. They're life-giving to a marriage and to our spouse. No healthy marriage can exist without putting on kindness and compassion and bearing with one another, forgiving one another. No healthy marriage can be healthy if you avoid doing that. And then it says, 
And above all these, verse 14, and above all these, put on love. And how many times have I thought, I'm so right, I'm so justified, I'm not backing down from this point. And the Lord, it's, a, it's as if he says, but you're being unloving. We so easily want to justify so many things in marriage. And then we say, well, but I'm being loving. But I love my spouse. They know I love them. If it doesn't accord with 1 Corinthians 13 and that definition of love, it's not love. We need to ask these type questions. Am I being patient and kind? Because love is patient and kind. Am I being arrogant and rude? Because love does not insist, or because love does not envy and boast. It is not arrogant and rude. Am I insisting on my own way? Because love does not insist on its own way. Am I being irritable and resentful? Because love is not irritable and resentful. Am I believing the best about my spouse? Because love believes all things and hopes all things. You see, the quality of our marriage is dependent on this command. Above all, put on love. A wife says, how can I draw my husband? He's so distracted and he strays from me. How do I get him back to me? Or a husband to a wife. I want my wife's affection. How do I get my wife back? Put on love. That binds, it says, everything together in perfect harmony. These little moments of love and putting on are are far more powerful than we think. Do you know why I can say that with so much confidence? Some of you who are theologians and have studied these things know what I've been teaching for the last 10 minutes. It's called progressive sanctification, which means that the Spirit of God actually changes us supernaturally when we do these little things, which is the third point, transformation. Look at verse 9. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, listen, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Another way to say it's being transformed. You are being transformed into the image of your creator. You see the connection. There's a connection between practicing these little put-off, put-on habits And being transformed into the person that your spouse needs. Look, what all of our spouses need is not another spouse. They need you to be a better version of yourself than you are. My wife doesn't need a a new husband. She needs John Mark to be a more Christ-like version of John Mark than I currently am. That's what these do to us. Practicing these habits begin to transform us into Christ's image. That's what it says. That's incredibly hopeful. That's incredibly hopeful. And what it says also in Romans 12, 2, the same thing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then you go, well, how do I do that? Well, then it lists 55 behaviors or habituating habits that you keep doing And it transforms the mind and transforms you. 
Ephesians 4.22 says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It says to be renewed or remade or transformed by putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So hope, uh, we're all asking, how do I do that? And I'm saying, you put off the old self, you put on the new self, And then it even goes on here, and I think this is central to all of this. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. All of these things are not in vain. Why do you think we sing? Why do we study the Bible? Just to do it because there's a command? Yes, but also because it changes us. It transforms us. Guys, look, what is the divorce rate for a couple who does all that? What what do you think the divorce rate is for a couple who shows up at church, they're singing, Bible's open all through the week, they're doing family worship, they're studying the word, they're putting off their old self and repenting of sin, they're they're pursuing righteousness, they're, uh, they're trying to do all the things that we just talked about. What's the divorce rate? I'll tell you, zero. If a couple actually embodies all of this, there is no divorce or mistreatment or neglect or abusive leadership or passivity. There's no harm done to one another if we actually embodied everything he said that we should be doing for each other. The problem is we don't. And when we don't, people get hurt. Our spouses get hurt. But if we actually did everything he said to do, it's the perfect plan for love, for flourishing, for all the things we desire in a marriage. Spouses hurt and harm each other when one or both spouses aren't centering God, when one or both spouses aren't putting off and putting on, when one or both spouses aren't worshiping and loving as they should. And you say, well, if marriage is only free from hurt, if we do all of that perfectly, that's not very hopeful. Well, it's not, because I'm not trying to build our hope in our spouse. I don't want you to hope in your spouse. God doesn't want you to hope in your spouse or yourself. We always are to look beyond our spouse and beyond our marriage, which leads to the fourth and final point, inheritance. This is absolutely essential that we get this last point. Let's start in verse 18. It says, wives, submit to your, own hu- submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So all these things related to the family. Now, the workplace, bond servants or employees, obey in everything those that are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, in the home, outside of the home, work heartily, as for the Lord... Not for men, not for wife, not for husband, 
Whatever you do, as for the Lord. Verse 24, listen, here's the promise connected to all that. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. That's the hope of a marriage. That's the hope of ministry uh, in a marriage. You've got to have a bigger vision for ministry to your spouse than temporal blessings or just hope it's more enjoyable. We've got to see ministry to our spouse as ministry to the Lord and connected with the blessings of the Lord. You know, I, li- I listen and study a lot old dead people, people, you know, 17th, 18th century Puritans and early Baptists. And when they talk about things like revival, how, how does God's spirit fall upon a people, upon a person? What, what must they prioritize in order for that to happen? You know, aside from prayer, do you know what they always mention? What they call a revival of religion in the home. You should not expect to see revival where you neglect your wife. And we saw that in First Peter last week, that if a man doesn't honor his wife as a weaker vessel, God won't hear his prayers. There is very much a connection between receiving the blessings of God... And how we treat our spouse. Very much a connection there. And people who believe that get that category from these type passages. That if you will honor God in your marriage, your home, your work, like verse 18 to 23 says, then verse 24 is a promise you can claim. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And and look, I know... We come out of different traditions and, and backgrounds, but there are people who say, you should never dangle before somebody rewards. Like, God doesn't do that. He doesn't dangle uh, over his people's heads these rewards. Do this good thing, and I'll reward you. Well, the problem I have with that is the Bible, <laughs> where God is exactly dangling over our head. If you do these things, I will reward you. I mean, it literally says that in verse 24. <laughs> there, there are absolute rewards and an inheritance that we will receive. And I take this in two senses, kind of an already not yet, that we get some of this now and some later. So I think doing Christian ministry to our spouse, as I've described, there are real benefits and blessings that we will reap in this marriage right now. Amen. Praise the Lord. Many of us taste those. We call them first fruits of our inheritance. Marriage is good when you do it God's way. It really is a blessing. But I think it's quite evident in this passage that we will not receive all of that in our earthly marriages. I mean, here's a good way to to know that I'm speaking the truth on this. When you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, you don't see a bunch of people, a bunch of married couples holding hands You know, one hand grasping their spouse, the other hand raised up before the Lord. Yes, now we get to have our marriages eternally in heaven. That's not the picture we see in Revelation. There's a bunch of married couples going, now we get to do this eternally. (laughs) You'll find that in the Book of Mormon. It's not in the Bible. Jesus was quite clear. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. You say, why no marriage in heaven? 
Well, because whatever this reward and inheritance is, it must be better than earthly marriage. What, what do we know that God calls something infinitely better than our earthly marriages to our spouse that we'll experience in heaven? Here's what, here's what the Bible calls it. Marriage to God. That's what's better than marriage to your spouse that you'll actually want eternally. That's the inheritance. The full inheritance. And you go, that's a weird way to end a marriage sermon to basically say one day it'll be so great to be unmarried. <laughs> but I'm not saying that. Because if you're married, you'll never be unmarried. You just won't be married to your earthly spouse anymore. You'll be married eternally to God, which is infinitely better than even the best of earthly marriages. And it really is. It really is. I believe that the ministry of marriage is the wife and the husband helping each other to, by the grace of God, enter into that eternal, all-satisfying marriage to God that we were made for. That's what the ministry of marriage is. And may the Lord help us, church, to help our spouses to enter into that marriage. Let's prepare ourselves to come to the table. Um, I think maybe the thought that we can connect all of this to the table is when Jesus describes marriage in the coming kingdom, he describes it as a, uh, he he describes it as a meal. That marriage where we'll be with Christ forever with all his people in heaven, we're eating. And this is a little tiny picture of that. Not that this does not, this is not everything. It's not supposed to be. But it's pointing to something. It's proclaiming something. Jesus said, eat this bread and drink this cup and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back for his bride. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts. If you're new, uh, we believe the Bible teaches that uh, that the, tup, uh, the, the supper is given uh, for those who are believers in Jesus, who've believed and received the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who've been baptized in his name. So if that's you, please join us. Uh, if you'll be refraining on your bulletin, there's some very meaningful prayers. I'd encourage you uh, in this time to read, read those. Let's go to the Lord. Uh, Father, Lord, what a, what a great hope for even the best marriages in this room or the worst marriages. But there's just something coming that's so much better. We thank you for that inheritance. And Lord, that does not make us want to love our spouses less. It makes us want to love our spouses much more. And so Lord, would you help us with that? Would you help us to honor you this week by loving our brides and by brides loving their groom? And Lord, may you get glory and honor through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.